Well, today we continue our series from the Sermon on the Mount. And do you perhaps recall when we began this series, I said there are going to be portions of it that you are going to find challenging because they stand in contrast to contemporary wisdom. And we probably come to such a passage today as we verse by verse look through the Sermon on the Mount. Now, at the time of this writing, there were three primary influences on the family. First of all, there was the Jewish influence. And they had a high ideal, very idealistic concerning the family. One commentator wrote, Marriage was a sacred duty which a man was bound to undertake. He might delay or abstain from marriage for only one reason, to devote his whole time to the study of the law. Because they held marriage in such high regard, they abhorred divorce. There was a rabbinical saying that said, The very altar sheds tears when a man divorces the wife of his youth. And yet as time went by, even though they had this idealistic idea about marriage, divorce became very commonplace. It became a simple process for a Jewish man to divorce his wife. For instance, he gave to her a bill of divorcement that read, Let this be from me thy writ of divorce and letter of dismissal and deed of liberation that thou mayest marry whatsoever man thou wilt. And he handed that document to his wife in the presence of two witnesses, and the divorce was finalized. So there was the Jewish influence on the family. And then there was the Greek influence on the family that was absolutely devastating to the family because they accepted adultery. Demosthenes wrote, We have courtesans, For the sake of pleasure, we have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately. And then Cicero wrote, If there is anyone who thinks that young men should be absolutely forbidden the love of courtesans, he is indeed extremely severe. So divorce then was allowed and, in fact, required no legal process. A man could dismiss his wife in the presence of two witnesses. He only needed to return her dowry, and the divorce was complete. Then there was the Roman influence. So there was the Jewish influence on the family, there was the Greek influence, and then the Roman influence. And once again, they had an extremely high standard for marriage. In fact, Barclay wrote, So high was the standard of Roman morality that for the first 500 years of the Roman commonwealth, there was not one single recorded case of divorce. For the first 500s of the Roman commonwealth, not one recorded case of divorce. So what happened? They were influenced morally by the Greeks. In fact, the commentator said, In the military and the imperial sense, 
Rome conquered Greece. But in the moral and social sense, Greece conquered Rome. Divorce became as common as marriage. So you have those three influences, and I just want you to understand the background that these three influences were there. There was the Jewish influence, there was the Greek influence, and there was the Roman influence. Now, that brings us to our text today, and what we're going to see is marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Those are the questions we're going to look at. So take your Bibles, look at Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse number 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out for and throw it from you, for it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off. And throw it from you, for it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go into hell. And it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery." All right, so we're going to look at this today, these three things. We're going to look at marriage, divorce, and then remarriage. As we look, we begin with the teachings of Moses. We go back to the teachings of Moses and understand at the time of Moses that a woman was held in such low esteem that a man could virtually divorce her for just about any reason. For instance, if she were a poor homemaker, that was reason for divorce. If she spoke to another man, that was reason for divorce. So I want you to understand at the time of Moses that the woman was held in such low esteem that a man could dismiss her for almost any reason. Thus, Moses wanted to control divorce somewhat. And he did so by limiting the grounds for divorce. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse number 1, Moses said, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. What I want you to see here is that Moses limited the grounds for divorce to some indecency. Now, that was the grounds that he gave for some indecency. And if a man found some indecency in the woman, then he gave to her a bill of divorcement. And within that bill of divorcement, he had to prove the indecency in his wife in the presence of two witnesses. He also had to include in the bill of divorcement the reason that he had divorced her, and this was for the purpose of protecting an innocent woman. She did not have that protection before. And to make it serious, Moses said, if one divorces one's wife, then he is not able to remarry her. So in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse number 4, 
Then her former husband, who sent her away, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife. So he is stressing here the importance. Now, guys, if you dismiss her, you don't get her back. So Moses then wants to control divorce because it had become so commonplace. At the time a woman was held in low esteem, a man could divorce her for virtually any reason. So Moses is trying to to control that somewhat, and he limited divorce to some indecency. That was the grounds for divorce. Now then that brings us to the teaching of the Pharisees. You recall that the Pharisees interpreted the law of Moses. Moses gave the law, the Pharisees interpreted it. There were two schools of thought concerning what Moses had written. There was the Hillel school. Now, the Hillel school was the liberal thought. And they said that in some cases, Moses urged a man to divorce his wife. And then they interpreted some indecency in the broadest way possible. What does some indecency mean? Because that's what Moses had said. So what did he mean? When he said that you can divorce your wife for some indecency, what did he mean? They said that if a woman appears in public with her head uncovered, that is some indecency. They said if a woman prepared a meal and there was too much salt used, that was some indecency. They said if a man found another woman who was more attractive to him, then his wife was guilty of some indecency. So that was the Hillel school. It was a very broad interpretation of some indecency. It included just about anything. The other school was the Shammai school. And it was the conservative interpretation. It was the conservative approach to some indecency. They defined some indecency as sexual unfaithfulness. So you have the Hillel school, just about anything qualified. The Shammai school, sexual unfaithfulness. Now, who do you suppose had the greatest influence at this time? The Hillel school or the Shammai school? The Hillel school. And so divorce was common. That's what Jesus is dealing with. And so it's obvious as we read this passage of Scripture, understanding that there are these two schools of thought. It is obvious to us in reading that Jesus sided with which school of thought? The Shammai school. So look at verse number 31. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus then sides with the Shammai school, the conservative interpretation So you see that in this passage of Scripture. In this passage of Scripture, he deals with the subject of adultery. And Vines defines adultery. He says, adultery denotes one who has unlawful intercourse with the spouse of another. Newland wrote that adultery is sexual contact outside of marriage by married people. 
It means infidelity. So Jesus here is emphasizing in his understanding of the family that if a man and a woman marry, he expects sexual faithfulness. Within the bonds of marriage, Jesus expects sexual faithfulness. So he deals with adultery. He deals with fornication in verse number 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause of unchastity. That word unchastity in the King James Version is translated fornication, which means sexual relations between single or unmarried people. Now, here's what I want you to see. He deals with adultery, and this is sexual unfaithfulness of married people. Then he deals with fornication. This is sexual activity for those who are not married, those who are single. Now, we know that that is a serious issue today. In fact, uh, those of us who are uh, a little bit older, I guess we are unsettled by the casual approach that so many young people have towards sex today. And yet Jesus deals with this issue. In fact, I was reading in Relevant Magazine that referenced a study done by the National Campaign to Prevent Teen and Unplanned Pregnancy... And in that survey, they stated that 88% of unmarried young adults ages 18 to 29 are having sex. And the number doesn't drop much among Christians. Why is, why is this such an issue today? Why is it such? Well, they listed some reasons for it. First of all, because of media's marketing of sex, you know that as well as I. Sex is used to sell everything. Toothpaste, it doesn't make any difference what it is, clothes, cars, hamburgers, it doesn't make any difference. Sex is used to sell everything today. My wife was, uh, I go to bed before she does because I like to go to bed and read and then she comes and gets in. She says, I was just watching MTV. I said, you were what? And she came in and said, I was just flipping through the channels, and I, I came to MTV, and Jersey Shore was on. Well, that sounds to me like it should be a travel channel or something, but she said, Jersey Shore. I said, well, what is that? She said, you wouldn't believe it. She said, I was mesmerized. by what I mean, girls are kissing girls, and all of this stuff is going on. She said, I watched a little of that, and I just felt like I was dirty. Well, folks, that... Parents, do you know that that's going on? Do you know? I mean, we, we wonder what is happening to our young people when they are filling their minds oftentimes with so much trash. Are, are you aware of that? You see, one of the reasons we have the problems that we, do, that we do and these things become acceptable to us is that it is promoted by the media. And then there's the prevalence of pornography. I've read the statistics. I've read all about the Internet and how many sites there are on pornographic sites that are on there. And it is so accessible. Let me tell you another reason. One of the reasons that we have this problem with casual sex today that we normally don't talk about is because people are marrying later. In 1965, the age of marriage of the average man was 22.8 years. The average woman was 20.6 years when she got married. In 2010, 
The average age for a man is 28.1, and the average age for a woman is 26.1. Scott McKnight, author of One Light, wrote, Sociologically speaking, the one big difference, and it's monstrous, between the biblical teaching and our culture is the arranged marriages of very young people. If you get married when you're 13, you don't have 15 years of temptation. Now, that's one of the problems that we have. It is a major issue today, is that people are getting married later And so they are going through this time with tremendous temptation. So Jesus then deals with the issue of adultery. He deals with the issue of fornication. And then he deals with lust in verse number 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. So Jesus says that lustful looking is adultery in the heart. Now, we all know that men like to look at pretty girls. I'm just seeing if my deacons are still awake down here. But come on, guys, three, four, five times? I told Linda one time, I said, you know, the the sin is not in the first look, it's the second look. And she said, it depends on how long is the first look. (laughs) So Jesus then sided with the Shammai school. He speaks on the issue of adultery. He speaks about fornication. And he speaks about lust. And he emphasized the sanctity of marriage. You know what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19? It was God who created the idea of marriage. He was not born in the mind of man. It was born in the heart of God. The idea of marriage came from God. And so Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19 that it was God who brought Adam and Eve together. It was God who joined man and woman together. It came from God. So Jesus says there in Matthew chapter 19, Thus... Man has no right to dissolve that that God has put together. And he says in Matthew chapter 19, verse 6, Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus then stresses the sanctity of marriage. Marriage happens when God brings two people together in marriage. And he says when God brings them together, then man has no right to dissolve it. The Bible tells us that God hates divorce. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. Why? Because it breaks a sacred vow. Folks, you need to understand when you get married that it is a sacred vow. It is a vow between the man and the woman and God. It is a sacred vow. And it hinders the development of godly children. The National Commission on Uh, Children said when parents divorce or fail to marry, children are often the victims. Children who live with only one parent, usually their mothers, are six times as likely to be poor as those living with both parents. So 
Jesus says that you are not to dissolve the marriage bond. Why? Because you break a sacred vow and because you hinder the development of godly children. But in verse number 32, he says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the cause of unchastity. That is the exception clause. He permits divorce, but does not require it. And I know of people I have known in the church where there has been sexual unfaithfulness, and those people have been able to work things out and have strong marriages today because they committed themselves to the Lord and to each other. So that's the teaching of Jesus. Now, we're going to get to the sticky part of it, and I'm just looking at what time it is, and I don't have a whole lot of time on this, but this is the sticky part, I think. And that is, okay, what about remarriage? Can a Christian divorce and remarry? Well, we have to ask another question before we can answer that one. Does the divorce dissolve the marriage or is it separation? Now, that is the question. Does divorce dissolve the marriage, or is it separation? Because if it is separation, no, you cannot remarry, because you're still married. If it dissolves the marriage, then you can remarry. I believe that both of these are referenced in Scripture. Separation in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. But to the married, I give instruction, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not send his wife away. Now then, in that case, this is separation. So there is separation of the husband and the wife. Therefore, there is not remarriage there because they are still married. But then there's another example of dissolution where the Marriage is dissolved. 1 Corinthians 7:15. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. The brother and the sister are not under bondage. Under bondage to what? To the marriage vow. The brother and the sister is not under bondage here to the marriage vow, thus this person is free to remarry. Now, I, I know of three approvals for divorce and remarriage. There may be more. I'm, I may just not be aware of them. But in, in searching the Scripture, I know of three approvals that are given. First of all, where there is unchastity. And you've seen that in verse number 32. God duty said, would Jesus make it right? For a man to divorce an adulterous wife and then make it wrong for him to remarry. What kind of law would that be which establishes a right but places a no marriage penalty on anyone who uses the right? So I believe then that one case for approval is where there is sexual unfaithfulness. Two, obviously, is where one spouse has died. The Scripture says in Romans 7, verse 2, For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. And then in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, A wife is bound as long as her husband lives 
But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So one approval area is where there is sexual unfaithfulness. The other is where there is death of one spouse. And the third is where there is desertion. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, we've already looked at, speaks of an unbeliever who deserts his believing wife. As I understand that, then that person is free to remarry. Guy Duty wrote, where there is valid ground for divorce, the marriage is dissolved for both parties. The divorce could not dissolve the union for one without dissolving it for the other. But the guilty party must take the blame before God. All right, so those are the three that I know. You may know others. I doubt it, but you may. So at this point you would say, okay, I am, I am divorced, and you didn't hit my situation here. So what do I do? As a Christian, what should I do? Well, you understand that divorce is a sin. It is not the unpardonable sin. I know that there are those people who seem to think that divorce is the unpardonable sin. I have not been able to find that in the Bible. It is not unpardonable. Therefore, seek forgiveness. Ask the Lord. Deal with it before the Lord. Request the Lord's forgiveness and accept it. Just like any other sin. You deal with it as it is. And the Bible teaches us that it is a sin. So ask the Lord's forgiveness and accept His forgiveness. Understanding that there are consequences that will remain just as there normally is. You get a divorce. The fact is it's probably going to affect you financially. There are going to be financial issues. It is going to affect your family. It is a nightmare. Whenever you're trying to work all of that kind of stuff out, it's just difficult to do. So there are consequences to, to it. So deal with it just like you deal with it within any sin and go forward with the Lord. Jesus said to the woman caught in the act of adultery, go and sin no more. So what I want you to do, even though you find yourself in that situation, is that you go forward with the Lord to count for Him and to glorify Him. But now let me conclude like this. Many of you are married... And a lot of the rest of you are one day going to get married. So let me just conclude by giving you a few words of advice concerning marriage. Number one, never consider divorce. When you get married, don't talk about getting divorced. I mean, don't let that become an option because if it becomes an option, you're going to exercise it somewhere. And I mentioned before, Linda said many times, I've considered killing him but not divorcing him. And there have been times I thought that she was, she was going to. But don't consider it. If you consider it, it becomes an option that you will exercise. Secondly, don't compare your mate to someone else. You get married and then you start looking around and you think, you know what? She looks a little better. I was talking to Charles Jackson, Bishop. I, I promoted him to Bishop. I pastor over at uh, Brookland Baptist. I was talking to him the other day, and he told me about going to his class reunion, his high school class reunion. He said, you know, I saw a lot of girls there that I had prayed and asked the Lord. I said, man, Lord, I'd like to marry that. And he said, I'm so glad God didn't answer that prayer. <laughs> don't compare your mate to someone else, and don't compare your marriage to someone else's marriage. What works for Linda and me probably would not work for you, because we just probably wouldn't work for you. <laughs> and what works for you would not work for us. So don't compare to someone else. 
Stop criticizing each other. Cicero wrote, it is the peculiar quality of a fool to perceive the faults of others and to forget his own. Learn to communicate. And I say to young people who are getting married, when they come and talk to me, I say, look, you're going to learn to communicate or your, divorce, or your marriage will fail. I believe that. Learn to communicate with each other. Trust each other. Do your best to please your mate. Now, you're not going to make them happy, but do your best to please them. Forgive them because none of us is perfect. Be thankful for your mate. Let me ask you, how long has it been since you've just gone before the Lord and said, God, I thank you for that woman you blessed me with. God, I thank you for that man. See, most of the time we go to the Lord and say, Lord, I know you can straighten him out. (laughs) Just go to the Lord and thank the Lord for giving you the mate that you have. And then when you marry, marry in Christ. Because marriage was born in the heart of God, not the mind of man. I know that's a lot of stuff to look at, but hopefully it will cause you to... Study the Word of God and commit yourself. And that's my desire, is that you commit yourself to godly homes. And you know what I think I'd do today? I think I'm going to have prayer in just a minute. And there's some of you here, maybe you've never given your heart to Christ. I hope you'll come today and trust the Lord and some to join the church. We'd love to have you. But husbands and wives, it might be good for you today. Just catch each other's hand and come to the altar and pray. And just sort of recommit your, yourself to each other and yourself to God. This is a sacred relationship. It's a sacred relationship. And it might be a time when you just want to come and kneel for a moment and then pray and then go back, give each other a kiss and commit yourself to the Lord because we desperately need strong homes. Gracious Father, we come to a time of this invitation. We ask, Lord, your blessings upon it. I pray, Father, that you speak to the hearts of your people in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask that you stand with me as we stand. I'll stand down here to receive anyone coming to join the church or making a commitment. But if you want to come and kneel, just renew yourself to each other, you feel free to do that.